I have to say again in this service, um, the worship has just been amazing uh, this morning. And I don't know about you, but I, I really feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in a special uh, way uh, here with us this morning. So that excites me. Um, I hope that the Lord makes clear the gospel in the minds and the hearts of all of us who are here. Um, I want to start our time off this morning uh, with a question. Um, in your life, do you know anybody who's just kind of a, a bragger? I mean, like if you read two books, they've read five. If if you, you know, got like a BMW, they got a Jaguar. Or if you went on a one-week mission trip, they went on a three-week mission trip. Or if you fasted for like 24 hours, they fasted for 48. And I mean, we all know these type of people. And if we're honest, I mean, we've all been that bragger, right? I mean, we all brag. We all like to look better than somebody else. Uh, my cousin, who will remain nameless, and I tried to keep the pronouns ambiguous so you wouldn't know who he or she was, and I blew it, and everybody knew when I blew it last hour, so I'm going to try better. This cousin, he or she, um, was in this particular time where she was with somebody, and they were just bragging. I mean, they were just letting it all out, and it was just kind of like, she's biting her tongue, she's biting her tongue, I'm going to be a good Christian, and all of a sudden she just looked at this person and said, you are a bragger! I mean, just straight out called her out, and uh, I wish like anything I could have been there, I wasn't, but I mean, truer words could not have been spoken uh, in that moment. And when I, when we read the first couple chapters of Galatians, I think it's a fair question, I mean, why is Paul talking about himself so much? I mean, why is Paul so concerned that his apostleship is the right apostleship or that his gospel is right and not these other people and these other messages? I mean, is he some egotistical guy? Like, should my cousin point at him and say, you're, you're just a bragger, you know? And I think, I mean, clearly that's how he used to live, right? He used to live and do this religious stuff so that he could gain the approval of the Jewish leadership and rise in the ranks, but he also makes it equally clear at the beginning of the book we've looked in Galatians 1.10, Paul says, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. I, I wouldn't be a Christian. In fact, when Paul encountered Christ, he lost the approval that he'd been working so hard to obtain for all those years. When he met Christ, he was rejected by everyone else, but was approved by God on Christ's merit. My guess is that that experience is a little different than what most of us experienced. Right? I, I think most of us probably had grandparents and parents who had been praying for us that we would turn away from our silliness and our kind of youthful stupidity and turn to Christ and the gospel Right? I mean, I think most of us, when we got baptized, there were people in the room who had tears in their eyes because they were experiencing at that moment years and years of unanswered prayer that were being answered right then. Right? That there was a celebration, a fun lunch afterwards. It was a really awesome, positive thing. Right? But imagine just for a second the opposite. And this is exactly what Paul experienced. He accepted Christ, and all of a sudden, with that, he didn't get a nice, fun lunch afterwards. He got rejection from his family, from the religious community that he had been pouring his life into by his contemporaries who, you know, he made the point clearly he was kind of going faster than they were up the ladder, right? He experienced rejection 
from everyone for the sake of being accepted by God through the gospel. So the question, would Paul then all of a sudden turn around and say, well, I'm not going to get these Jewish folks accepted, so now I'm just going to try to get the approval of the Galatians. And clearly that's not uh, what's going on. And one of the most convicting verses in all the book to me, Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And there we have our answer. As Paul is boasting, if you will, in his apostleship, as he's defending himself and his gospel, he is boasting in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul could care less what the Galatians think about him. I mean, he could care less about what the Jewish leadership actually thinks about him per se. He could care less about what these Jewish authorities think about him. And he's not sitting up in heaven like wondering, do we like him or not? Okay. But Paul does care very deeply about what the Galatians think about Jesus, about what the Jewish leadership thinks about Jesus, about what we think about Jesus. Paul defends his apostleship in order to defend the gospel, because he knows that Paul's gospel, his gospel, is the only true gospel. And that there are lots of other messages that are masking around, masquerading around as the gospel, but his gospel is the only true gospel. And what we do with that gospel is the most important thing that we'll ever do in our life. Right? Paul knows this. When we die, really only one decision is going to be significant at that moment. Right? Has Paul's gospel become our gospel? Has Paul's gospel become ours gospel, our gospel? And Paul is more, he carries that weight and that reality with him probably more than any other person in the history of the church. It colors everything that he does, everything that he says, and everything that he writes. And that's why Paul, in these first two chapters, is so forcibly arguing for his apostleship and his gospel. We saw the flow of his argument essentially has three prongs. Right? So he's saying, you should believe my gospel, not these other guys, not the message of these other guys, because one, I received it directly from God. All right? Two, it's not some watered-down, distilled, distorted gospel. I didn't get this wrong secondhand. I was independent from these Jerusalem leaderships. I didn't, I didn't get something from them and distort it. It was independent from them. And then the third prong of his argument is really what Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is arguing, that even though it was directly from God, he was independent from them, they share a unity in this message. That in fact, this gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles was exactly the same gospel that the Jerusalem leadership believed and were proclaiming. And as he just brilliantly unpacks this argument, he's saying, listen guys, Galatians, these guys who are coming in, kind of infiltrating your churches, these are the same guys that the Jerusalem leadership said, nah. And this gospel, this message that they're preaching is the same gospel and message that the Jerusalem leadership in this passage today went, eh, I don't think so. Paul's right, they're wrong. Okay, but as he does this, as he lays out this argument, he unfolds for us or unpacks or exposes two aspects or fruits, whatever you want to call them, of the gospel that have the potential to change everything about our lives. 
liberty and unity. Liberty and unity. See, it's Paul's gospel and Paul's gospel alone that brings liberty and unity. Every other message, every other religion, every other kind of distorted version of the gospel brings exactly the opposite, bondage and division. So Paul makes the choice clear for the Galatians and he makes the choice clear for us. Either liberty and unity, if you want to side with me and my gospel, or you can side with them, that's fine, and you'll experience bondage and division. So liberty and unity are bondage and division. In verse 2, chapter 2, uh, verse 4, I mean, Paul claims that we have liberty in Christ Jesus. But how does Paul's gospel bring us liberty? Paul knows this question is out there. How does his gospel bring liberty? And he answers the question in the person of Titus. So we learn in verse 1, again of chapter 2, that Paul went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And this little phrase is all important. Taking Titus along also. In verse 3, we learn something really important about Titus. We learn that he is Greek. And this means that he is uncircumcised. So Paul, knowing what these false brethren were going to teach and challenge his message, uh, namely that you need Christ and obedience to the Mosaic law, and as to Titus, Jesus and circumcision, he brings Titus to bring the theological discussion down from this abstract, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a needle to a very concrete example. So he's going to say, okay, I, I hear what you guys are saying. You need Jesus and circumcision. So here's Titus. You're saying this guy has to be circumcised to have right standing with God? Really? Uh, And so we have this meeting between Paul and the Jerusalem leadership who brings Titus to anticipate this question. But the meeting starts with Paul unpacking the gospel. We look in verse 2 that Paul began the meeting in Jerusalem by submitting to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So what is this gospel that he has been preaching among the Gentiles? Um, As Paul, uh, as Tracy, Paul, I mean, you know, same thing. Uh, As Tracy has been saying, gospel means uh, good news, right? So good news, as we all know, only has meaning in the context of bad circumstances, right? If, If there's nothing wrong, then good news is kind of meaningless. So to understand Paul's gospel, we have to understand what are these bad circumstances to which the gospel is spoken. So these bad circumstances start actually with some pretty good news, that there is a holy, perfect, loving, righteous, all-knowing God who exists, has always existed, uh, and is. So that's pretty good news. But the bad news is, instead of responding to this all-knowing, holy, all-powerful, sovereign God in love and worship and submission to our life uh, to him uh, like we should have, we rebelled against this holy, awesome God. So, so this is pretty bad news, right? So if we, we have rebelled against this all-powerful, all-knowing God, so we are in a state of being under his judgment, under his condemnation, under his wrath. And our rebellion has resulted in an infinite debt, right? Because he is infinitely holy, uh, and our rebellion 
uh, means we've offended something infinite. So our punishment, our judgment is also infinite, which means we can't fix it. So, so this is really, really bad news. I mean, you can't really have worse news than this, that the God of all creation, we're under his judgment and wrath and there's nothing we can do to fix it. But this is where the gospel comes in. These are the bad circumstances to which the gospel is spoken. But Paul's gospel is pretty clear. Jesus fixes this, okay? The Father sends Jesus Christ, as we sung all those songs, had such great theology, that while we were in our sin and rebellion and couldn't do anything to fix it, God sent Jesus. He lived a perfect life, died a brutal death, the death that we deserved on the cross was buried, but by the power of God was raised from the dead. And in his death and in his resurrection, our sin is taken. Our infinite debt is paid. Only he can pay it because he's infinite. He's God. And our, his righteousness is placed upon us. So as we've said, the gospel is our unrighteousness, our sin is taken away, and his righteousness is placed upon us. It is because of this gospel that we have right standing with God solely on the merit of Christ and not our own merit, by which Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All sin, past, present, and future, has been dealt with by the cross of Jesus Christ. So even every sin, even those really bad sins, even the sins, like we confess some sins, but we don't confess other sins, right? Because some sins are like acceptable and some aren't. Even those sins, Christ has dealt with on the cross and there's no condemnation if you're in Christ for you, for anything. It's also because of Christ Jesus, the merit of Christ Jesus and that alone, that Paul can say in Colossians 1, 21 through 22, one of my favorite passages, which is why I keep reading it to you guys, that although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, or above reproach. Even in your worst days, even while you are committing your worst sin, even then, if you are in Christ, the Father declares over you solely because of the merit of Jesus Christ, holy, blameless and above reproach. This is Paul's gospel. This is a message of liberty. But, okay, that's Paul's gospel. What were these false brethren preaching? I mean, I kind of want that, right? But these false brethren were saying, okay, Paul, we're with you on the Jesus thing. Like, he's a big deal. You, You have to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but you also clearly have to obey It's Jesus and blank. But for them, it was Jesus and obedience to the Mosaic law. And for Titus, this Titus guy, this guy clearly has to be circumcised. I mean, Jesus didn't do away with circumcision, did he? This is the false brethren. But Paul makes clear in his gospel, if you are looking towards anything of your merit, if you want to add even like this much to the work and merit of Christ, you've totally missed the point you've totally misunderstood the bad circumstances into which the gospel is preached. Specifically, you've misunderstood four things. The holiness of God, you've kind of depreciated that. The depth of your depravity, rebellion, and sin, like you've not understood that's a really big deal. The consequences that flow from that, that they are infinite, 
you can't fix them. And then fourth, the unique significance of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay, so if you are looking to your merit at all, y- you don't get it. And that's what Paul is saying to these false brethren. You just don't get it because all these errors are clearly manifest in their teaching. And this is the teaching that these false brethren brought to the meeting. Evidently, while Paul was unpacking his gospel, these false brethren came in and made a scene, stirred it up, heightened uh, the stakes uh, by attacking Paul by pointing to Titus. Look in verse 4 with me. It was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. And there you have the contrast, the liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Now the meeting got real, right? I mean, these false teachers came in. You can almost see them coming in and grabbing Titus by the shoulder and throwing him in the middle of the room and saying, see, guys, we told you Paul doesn't get it. We've been saying the right message. He's been messing it up. It's clear. See, this guy he brought in, did you know he's not circumcised? I mean, it's clear. So you have to be circumcised to have right standing with God. That's what our traditions have always been. That's what we've always taught. But he brought to you, the leaders of the church, this uncircumcised Greek guy. And he's not claiming that he has to be circumcised. So, okay, once and for all, you guys, tell him he's wrong. Tell him his error so he can, you know, stop going around and messing people up. That you just have to trust in the merit and the work of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's the tension. Those are the two messages, liberty or bondage. And skipping to the end of the story, just a couple verses down, we know that, right, these false brethren lose. Paul wins. Uh, He is aligned with the Jerusalem leadership. In verse 5, Paul makes it clear that they did not yield in subjection to them, that's the false brethren, for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So Paul wins, and, and, and this victory for Paul is like really, really good news for Titus, uh, right? In verse uh, 3, we learn that not even Titus, who was with us, though he was Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, okay? So we're in mixed company, so I'm not going to unpack what circumcision is and why Titus was really, really relieved that he didn't have to do this. Um, but if you need some clarity, maybe you could turn to the person Beside you, if you know him well, if not, it could get really awkward. So maybe just come talk to me at the end. But at the end of the day, liberty for Titus meant he didn't have to get circumcised. Okay, he was going to have a better, better uh, day. Um, but it's one thing to say that these false teachers were wrong, right? But it's another thing to think about why did the message that these false teachers proclaim bring bondage? We saw that these false teachers came in to spy out the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But what, what is this bondage and why is it so devastating to us? And I think there's two things about this bondage that makes it so deadly for conservative evangelicals, for folks sitting in this room in Shreveport, Louisiana. One, it's so hard to perceive that we're living in this bondage, that we are experiencing this bondage, right? And the second thing is that it brings bondage because it's just a lie. (laughs) If you do something good in order to merit God's favor, that good act is actually sin. And that good act, instead of bringing the liberty you think it will bring, actually brings more bondage, more chains around your wrists. 
It's hard to perceive. Bondage in general is really great that way because it binds people up without them really realizing what's going on. It's like, you know, the frog in the little pot as it heats up. They don't really know it's being cooked and all of a sudden, you know, we have frog legs. I mean, that's what happens with this type of bondage. When I was an associate at uh, my law firm, my first job, real job, in uh, Dallas, all of us associates were just miserable. I mean, we, we were really um, despising uh, life and our jobs. And so we had these lunches that were bonding experiences because there were gripe sessions, right? You, you've always been, you've been to these lunches, right? Like, did you see what that partner did to me? Or I had two all-nighters this past month. I, I hate my life. Or, yeah, man, I know, I built 270 hours. You know, it's just this gripe session. We're all miserable. You get the picture. Now, let me just clarify. The partners at the law firm were most of them pretty nice people um, and they weren't out to ruin our lives or marriage and there are lots of people who worked a lot harder than we did. And part of the problem was I'm part of a generation like us younger folks who think we should be able to experience the benefit of hard labor without actually like having to do the hard labor, right? So, I, I mean, I know I got some good amens from the first service the, the employer like, yeah, that's right, that's right. But be that as it may, the answer is pretty clear for me, and we were all miserable. Look around, like, get out. I mean, what? you see where this is going, just get out. But they couldn't. A lot of them couldn't. One conversation I had with a senior associate who's, who's now a partner over there, he said, man, I'd love to get out. I, I'm, I'm really happy for you, but I can't. I was like, it, this is, you realize this is America, right? Like, you actually can change jobs. He's like, no, I can't afford to. I've got school debt. Um, I've got private school tuition. I've got this big mortgage. I've got credit card bills. I've got da 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 da. I mean, you know the list, right? Our society calls that the golden handcuffs, right? This guy was in bondage. <clears throat> he had no clue. He knew it, but he didn't know he didn't know what it was. He couldn't see that he had trapped himself, and and that's why bondage is so powerful because we are in it and we don't realize it. But this type of bondage that is being preached by these false brethren is so devastating to us because it's the default way we live, right? We live for the approval of those around us. Like most of us live for the approval of our parents. Okay, like there's this blackout period from 13 to 19 where we hated our parents, but most of us um, really would love for our parents to approve of the course we've taken in life, the job we've chosen, I mean, that's kind of a big deal for a lot of us. Uh, or we live for the approval of our boss, right? If our boss isn't happy with us, our day ain't going to be happy. Or if we're the boss, we live for the approval of our clients, right? If your clients aren't happy and they don't use you, you don't get money and all of a sudden you're in trouble, right? Or we live for the approval of our spouse, our significant other, or our kids, our grandkids, or our peers. The list goes on and on and on and it is exhausting, isn't it? I mean, if that's not bondage, I don't know what is. I mean, you can never get it. It's that dangling carrot. You chase it, you chase it, you chase it, you get it right when you grab it, it's gone. And then you start all over again. And while that is a devastating form of bondage, the real problem, the real devastation comes when we turn that type of mentality, that type of living, and we focus it on God. So now I'm going to live in such a way to gain God's approval. So everything that I do, I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to be good enough. 
And that is real. The real devastation ends because it's a lie, isn't it? We all know it. J.D. Greer captures this second point really, really well in his book, The Gospel, in the introduction. This is a long quote, but it, it's really powerful. Stay with me. It's worth it. I first put my faith in Christ when I was in high school. I got a big list of stuff to start and stop doing for God. I, I didn't dance because dancing would make you have impure thoughts. I didn't listen to music with a beat in it because it would make you want to dance. Um, I didn't see movies because movies would make you worldly. I didn't even go see Christian movies because other people might assume we were there to see the worldly movies. I set goals for how many people I'd tell about Jesus in a given month. He actually had like a time limit where he could sit with somebody before he had to preach the gospel to them. Like he gave him like three minutes. So he got a three minute pass and okay, I got to tell you the gospel, you know, um, I took lots of mission trips and gave lots of money to missions. I lived in a third world fundamentalist Muslim country for two years. I sponsored a compassion child. And this is where the wheels start to come off. I mean, he's doing way more than all of us are doing. Um, But wasn't she just an endless one in an endless sea of hurting people that desperately needed my help? Should I adopt five more, 25 more? Did I really need to drink that Coke at dinner? Couldn't that money be used to feed another orphan? I constantly felt guilty about anything I owned. Whatever I gave, it wasn't enough because there was always more I could give. No matter how many rules I kept and how disciplined my life was, I walked around with an ever-present sense of guilt. He was in bondage. In the deepest part of my heart, I knew, knew God was not really pleased with me because there was always something I could be doing better. I was tired. This guy was doing all the right stuff. And all it was doing was landing him into deeper and deeper and deeper bondage. This is why it's so devastating. We can't perceive it, and it's a lie. If we think that we can earn God's merit or God's favor because of anything we do, whether it's living in a Muslim fundamentalist world or not going to movies or whatever it is, we are creating bondage for ourselves. Tim Keller puts it like this way, self-salvation through good works may produce a great deal of moral behavior in your life. But inside and without realizing it, you're filled with self-righteousness, cruelty, and bigotry and you're miserable. You're always comparing yourself to other people, and you're never sure you're being good enough. Anybody there with J.D. Greer this morning? I know a lot of us are. I've flowed in and out of this a lot. It is really, really exhausting and really, really devastating. To those of you who are like me, who struggle with this type of bondage, I just want you to sit this morning and rest in these words of Jesus that were recorded in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are looking for rest,
for your soul this morning. It is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone. There's no rest unless you rest in the truth of the gospel that God's acceptance of you, your right standing with God, is solely based upon the merit of Jesus Christ and not your merit at all. And Jesus stands this morning and invites you, as he did to the people 2,000 years ago, come to him, for you will find rest for your souls, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The gospel is the only way to have liberty and to be free from this type of bondage. So Paul's gospel brings liberty, but it also brings unity. How, how does God, Paul's gospel bring unity? I think it brings unity in three different ways. One, it serves as the only proper foundation for unity within the community of faith. Two, it is the only thing that gives us the ability to experience lasting unity with one another. And third, it gives us unity by having a common purpose and a common goal. Look at verses 6, the latter part of verse 6 through 10 with me. Those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul's statement in verse 6 that James, Cephas, and John contributed nothing to him is probably the most profound statement in the entire passage. It could be translated this way. These pillars, they added nothing to the content of my gospel. In other words, the gospel that I have been preaching among the Gentiles that we have unpacked this morning is the very gospel that the Jerusalem leadership had believed and was preaching in Jerusalem. There was unity in these very important, powerful people in the church in its early stage. There was unity in the gospel then, and it remains to be the only proper foundation for unity now. Now, that is an easy statement to say in the abstract. In the concrete, it gets a little more complicated. I asked this so if you were to guess how many Protestant denominations there are in the world, how many would you say? Throw out a number. Hopefully you can do better than first service. 500, okay, 500. Try, and now this is Wikipedia, so it's on the internet. It has to be true, okay? I actually don't stand by these numbers, but it wouldn't surprise me. According to Wikipedia, 41,000, Christian Protestant denominations exist in the world today. Now, why that doesn't surprise me is one of my study partners in law school was Catholic, uh, and he always chastised me about being a Protestant. One of the big you know, bones he had to pick with us is, he was like, David, the problem you have with Protestants is, man, anybody who can print a business card can start their own denomination. And, and we see lots of that stuff going on right there. There's some weird and wacky stuff out there. 
So how do we decide who we're going to be united with and how do we decide who we're going to be like the false brethren? Like, y'all need to get out of here. And it is the same as it was back then, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If anyone, whether they have their own business card or not, believes that we have right standing with God solely based upon the merit of Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, then chances are they're okay. Now, there can be some disagreements on some other stuff, and there are. But if we have unity in the gospel, if we have the gospel right, uh, then that is the proper foundation of unity. Second, it gives us, the gospel is the only thing that really can create an environment of lasting unity. Right? You guys have been around long enough to know that Christians are sometimes not the easiest people to have unity with. Right? I mean, we are going to hurt one another's feelings. We are going to be mean to one another. We are going to say things that we shouldn't say uh, to people, and people are going to get their feelings hurt and pout. Okay? So when that happens, you can either let the root of bitterness kind of creep in and, and just darken your heart, or you can look to the gospel and realize, however they were wrong to you, you infinitely offended a holy God. And as you look at the unconditional love and the unmerited favor that has been poured out on you, as you mind the depths of that truth, from that place is the only way you can look to somebody who has really offended you and done you wrong and say, I'm going to stick it out with you. I may not like you right now. I may want to punch you in the nose right now, but I am going to stick with you. I'm going to bear your burdens and you're going to bear mine. We're going to do church together as long as we're alive. That's the only way that this church can continue to have unity. It's the gospel. And third, they, we experience unity not just so we can, you know, kind of circle around the campfire and sing Kumbaya, right? We experience unity in the gospel so that we can go out and proclaim the gospel among the nations so we can fulfill the commission that Jesus left us before he left us. In Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As it was for Paul and the Jerusalem leadership, unity was for a purpose, to proclaim the gospel among the nations. And we still have that same calling today. The great thing about this church, I think, is that a practical way we're doing that is partnering with the Lewis family in South Sudan and growing and planting churches among the Taposa people, who most of which have never even heard the gospel, uh, the Taposa who live in the Karkamugi region. But that's not the extent of this great commission work that will come from this room. There are so many resources, so many talented people so many awesome men and women who love the Lord. And I am personally excited to see how the Lord is going to use each of us individually to fulfill the great commission that he has given us. Now, again, we don't go to earn his favor, right? We don't go on a mission trip because now we're going to be on like the super, like super Christian side. We go on a mission trip because we've tasted the gospel and really just want others to be able to taste that as well. And we want him to receive glory. Finally, the final verse, the Jerusalem leadership just gave Paul one instruction. 
to remember the poor. I think this is an aspect of Christianity that, that I really don't have down quite yet. And I think we in this part of Shreveport don't really, a lot of us don't, some do, I don't. Um, the gospel can never be severed from social justice. Now, some people, some more liberal camps, confuse the gospel with social justice, and, and that's wrong. But we should also realize that the gospel and social justice, remembering the poor, ministering to the poor, if you read the words of Jesus through the gospel, it is very clear that the gospel and the poor and ministering and taking care of the poor are related. And I'm excited that Jared Clary has come on staff and he's going to help me and help all of us think about how tangibly we can minister to the poor in Shreveport, Bossier, how we can experience the charge that was placed on Paul that is also placed upon us. So the gospel, Paul's gospel brings unity as the proper foundation, as the only way we can have unity, uh, and we have unity in purpose to proclaim his name among the nations and to minister to the poor around us. So the message today is pretty clear. Paul's gospel brings liberty and unity. Paul's gospel is the sole source of liberty. Every other message brings bondage because every other religion, if you study it, is this type of work-based acceptance, that God will accept me if I do this stuff. Maybe or maybe not. But the gospel brings liberty because we can find rest for our souls in the truth that our acceptance with God is solely based on something outside of ourselves, on the merit of Jesus Christ. If you've never responded to the invitation of Jesus that we read earlier, I want to read it again. And I would encourage you this morning to just receive it. Who of us doesn't want rest for our souls? Jesus says to you this morning, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you've never experienced rest for your souls, experience it this morning. We'd love to talk to you. I'd love to talk to you. If you have accepted this invitation, but like me, bear the scars of the bondage of a work-based Christianity, again, the same invitation is issued to you. Come and find rest for your souls in the beauty and the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Stop working, stop trying to earn what you already have. As Timothy Keller says, let grace have its way with you. Do you pray with me? Father, we, many of us come here weary. For years we have tried to muster enough good works for you to be pleased with us. We have treated you like other people and we live in such a way to try to make ourselves look good and, and, and strive and grow more and more weary and desperate because we can never do enough. Lord, I pray that many here this morning, myself included, would respond to your invitation to come to you to find rest 
for our souls in the beauty and in the power of the gospel. That there's nothing we can do to make you love us more and there's nothing that we can do to make you love us less because our desperation, our hopeless situation, our infinite debt that we could not repay was taken care of by Jesus Christ. That it was something outside of ourselves that brings us to you. So nothing inside of ourselves can pull us from you. Lord, would you open our eyes to our bondage and the particular shapes it takes in our life and free us from it. And likewise, would you open our eyes to the beauty and the power and the wonder of the gospel so that we can live in the liberty that it brings. Holy Spirit, would you do this morning what only you can do? Would you bring life from death? Would you bring liberty from bondage? We pray all this through the power and mighty name of Jesus Christ.